ideas and conclusions while others struggled to grasp the situation. Now, life inside the TARDIS had given full rein to her air of mystery, and the adventures outside it had deepened her love for life in all its various forms, maturing her sense of values, giving her the ability to taste the joys and sorrows of existence to the absolute last drop. Where her face and form had conjured up beauty in the eye of any beholder, now beauty radiated from within and trebled her physical attractions, making her the admiration and desire of all who met her. But always her eyes turned to Ian, and their hands were ready to reach out and touch. For whatever world of the future enmeshed them, they knew their destinies were bound up in each other. The one sure thing fixed and unalterable in the ever-changing life with the Doctor. The question of change itself became the subject of a conversation one evening in the TARDIS between Ian and the Doctor. Barbara and Vicky were playing a game of Martian chess, a complicated affair with seventy-two pieces, while the two men rested on a Victorian chaise longue facing the centre control column of the ship for the doctor's eyes were never far away from his precious dials and instruments. Behind them lay the adventure of the talking stones of the tiny planet of Tyron in the 17th galaxy. Around them, the ship shivered faintly as it hurled itself through space and time. A dozen minute tape recorder spools whirled frantically on one side, while hundreds of little bulbs on the central control column glowed intermittently in a never-ending sequence. The stately Ormolu clock ticked its needless way through a time pattern which had no meaning, kept in the ship purely for decoration. On the other side of it, some twenty feet away, on a tall marble column, stood the magnificent bust of Napoleon Bonaparte. The pale gold of the interior lighting of the TARDIS shone down on the travellers like warm afternoon sunshine. The doctor shifted his feet impatiently, and then leaned towards the Martian chessboard, darting out a rigid finger. "'You're forgetting the one important rule, Vicky, my dear,' he said testily. "'To marry your princess to an opposing lord, you must bring up your priest.' He smiled apologetically at Barbara, as Vicky nodded excitedly, moved up one of her pieces, and captured an enemy lord. "'I'm sorry, Barbara, but you did leave yourself open.' Barbara looked at him indignantly. I was planning to marry my captain to her duchess. Now you've made me lose a dowry. The two girls started to bargain over the forfeit as the doctor sat back. I'd better keep myself to myself, he muttered to Ian. He wriggled himself into a more comfortable position, crossing one leg over the other and folding his arms. The polish on his elastic-sided boots gleamed beneath the immaculate spats. The perfectly tied cravat sat comfortably beneath the stiff, white wing collar, enhanced by a pearl stickpin. No speck of dust or tiny crease were anywhere in evidence on his tapered black jacket, with its edges bound in black silk, or on the narrow trousers, patterned in black and white check. The long silver hair hung down from the proudly held head, obscuring the back of his coat collar. Gold pince-nez, attached around the neck by a thin black satin tape, completed the picture Ian and Barbara had always known. 
for the doctor's favorite costume was that of the Edwardian English gentleman of the early 1900s. Ian had always thought that the doctor might have stepped straight out of the drawings of the famous magazines of the period, The Strand or Vanity Fair, and as Ian marveled for about the thousandth time at the doctor's obsession with that one short period of life on Earth, when he had all space from which to choose, it brought a question to his lips he had often wished to have answered. It's often puzzled me how it is, Doctor, that we can visit all these different worlds and affect the course of life. You must confess we have interfered often in quite a major kind of way. Always for the best intentions and generally we have succeeded, murmured the old man. Ian nodded. Well, that really isn't my point, though. Why is it that when we land on Earth, with all the pre-knowledge of history at our disposal, we can't right one single wrong, make good the bad, or change one tiny evil? Why are we able to do these things on other planets and not on Earth? Barbara and Vicky forgot their game and stared at the doctor, who pressed the fingers of his hands together and thought for a moment before replying. "'You see, Chesterton,' he said eventually, "'the fascination your planet has for me "'is that its time pattern, "'that is, past, present, and future, is all one, "'like a long, winding mountain path. "'When the four of us land at any given point on that path, "'we are still only climbers. "'Time is our guide. "'As climbers, we may observe the scenery.' We may know a little of what is around a coming corner, but we cannot stop the landslides, for we are roped completely to time and must be led by it. All we can do is observe. What would happen if we cut those ropes and tried to change something? asked Vicky. <laughs> Warn Napoleon he would lose at Waterloo, smiled the doctor. <laughs> It wouldn't have any effect. Bonaparte would still believe he could win and ignore the warning. I suppose one were to assassinate Adolf Hitler in 1930, then, suggested Barbara. The doctor shook his head. But Hitler wasn't assassinated in 1930, was he? No, Barbara, it would be impossible. Once we are on Earth, we become a part of the history that is being created, and we are as subject to its laws as the people who are living in that period. Then we can never die on Earth, said Ian. The doctor said, We do not have everlasting lives, my friend. Of course we can die on Earth, or anywhere else, just as we can catch colds or suffer burns. Try and understand... The doctor leaned forward, and as he did so, a part of his face slipped into a shadow. Often our escape clause on Earth has been that we have pre-knowledge that some awful catastrophe is going to happen. We would know when to leave Pompeii. We would not go fishing on the Somme River in the summer of 1916. We would not disguise ourselves as Phoenicians and live in Carthage in A.D. 648 and let ourselves be destroyed with the city by the Arabs or go for a sea voyage in the Titanic. Then we can do nothing for suffering, murmured Barbara sadly. 
We can never help anyone on earth or avert horrible wars. She looked up at the doctor and was surprised to see a slight smile on his lips. There is a story about Clive of India, the old man remarked casually, which tells how he attempted to commit suicide as a young man by putting a pistol to his head. Three times he pulled the trigger, and each time the gun failed to explode. Yet whenever he turned it away, the pistol fired perfectly. As you know, Robert Clive did eventually take his own life in 1774. The point is that time, that great regulator, refused to let the man die before things were done that had to be done. The doctor held up a hand as all three of his friends started to speak. I know exactly what you're all about to say. Why do men like Lincoln and Kennedy, those two outstanding American presidents, have their lives cut off short when everything lay before them and they had shown themselves capable of doing good for their fellow men? How can I, or any person, answer that? It is too easy to say that the sharp, shocking manner of their deaths underlined heavily the contributions they made. Life, death, the pattern of time are eternal mysteries to us. Here you find one man squandering his talents on wholesale slaughter, evil and terrible acts of indignity. There, another makes every effort for peace, goodwill and happiness. Inventors of medicines and advantages for others are laughed into insane asylums. Discoverers of murder weapons die in old age as millionaires. True love is set aside. Hatred seems to flower. But that's a